When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Greetings from the Hill Country of Central Texas. I'm Amos Fox, and this is Revolution and Military Affairs. On today's episode of Revolution and Military Affairs, we're going to discuss military thinking as it relates to land warfare and combined arms warfare. Um, but we're going to do so through the lens of a, a terrific book by Robert Satino called The Death of the Wehrmacht, The German Campaigns of 1942, which is published by University of Kansas Press, uh, and this book is part of a, a series of books published by Satino on the German military during the Second World War, the first of the books being The German Way of War, which is subtitled From the Thirty Years' War to the Third Reich, uh, the second book being The Death of the Wehrmacht, the one we're discussing, uh, the, the next book in the series being The Wehrmacht Retreats, Fighting a Lost War in 1943. And then the final book in the series being The Wehrmacht's Last Stand, the German Campaigns of 1944 to 1945. And that uh, that series of books is arguably one of the, the best sets of books any anyone can study if they want to learn about just military thinking, military theory, how to fight campaigns, how to fight battles, how to fight engagements, how to think about the larger strategic aspects of war fighting. It is a truly remarkable set of books, uh, but again, like I said, we'll focus here today on the death of the Wehrmacht, and I'll put those books in the uh, in the show notes so that you can find them. Uh, they're a really good set of books to examine uh, the evolution of military thinking, really from the time of Frederick the Great um, all the way up through the end of the Second World War. And in doing so, it's not just a look at German military thinking, but it's a, a look at European military thinking and Western military thinking as well, as you see uh, 
the United States and other, other actors come into play later on in the Second World War, the death of the Wehrmacht is a good starter uh, to examine a lot of the ideas that dominate military thinking today, and uh, they help explain why some ideas have come from where they have come. And uh, it's also, as I flip back through the book, um, as I prepared for this podcast, I also found some interesting, some interesting myths, if you will, that need to be reexamined um, based off how things are today. And so there's also an interesting facet here that I'd like to point out as well. A couple of years ago, um, I had I had this conversation with a historian on a book that he had just published, a terrific book on. Uh, I, I likened it to a book on military thinking and military theory on top of being a military history book. And I had mentioned that to him in our discourse on the book uh, because a lot of people that I had uh, worked with and discussed the book with, people that had read the book at the time, had thought that the book was very much a military theory book and it, it very much addressed a lot of the the ideas about the ideas related to military thinking. And so when I pointed this out to that author, he corrected me and told me that, uh, that the book was not, was not a military theory book, but it was a history book, purely plain and simple. And I told him, like, you may not have intended to write a book that comments on military theory and military thinking uh, when you set out to write this history. However, um, you did. And so... I think that there's an important overlap, and I'm no historian, um, but I will say that uh, I think done correctly, a lot of military history itself covers a lot of ground of as it relates to military theory and military thinking, because that military history really gets down in the deep, dark depths of the hows and whys of decisions and the hows and whys of from Frederick II to the, the Wehrmacht of 1942, why it was a line. And, uh, and so it's just an interesting point, I think, to note when you, when you step off on this track of examining military history uh, for the purposes of looking at military thinking. The, uh, the, the U.S. and its, uh, its infatuation with German military thinking after the Second World War, which is the irony of that is, is not lost on me, is an interesting facet of, uh, of how and why cognitions about what is better and worse in war fighting um, develop. When you look at the German way of war, and this is a point here that Satino points out, for instance here he says that uh, the United States in particular had come into the war with only the barest idea of how it intended to fight. And he talks about, despite the fact that the U.S. didn't know how it intended to fight, it possessed the material balance, the material asymmetry over just about everybody else involved in the conflict that it didn't really matter how the U.S. fought because its resources, its material superiority Gave it, a, it had a forgiving aspect on the potential and, 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 apply, and realized failures of how the U.S. fought in the war. Germany, on the other hand, Satino says, if there was one army in the world that was used to fight 
that was used, sorry, if there was one army in the world that was used to fighting from a position of material inferiority, this was the one, this being Germany. And so that material inferiority caused the Germans to fight differently. And so this goes back and this influences how the Germans fought essentially from, from the time of Frederick II to the Second World War. And then in addition, and this I think is you know, fairly widely accepted and widely known at this time, Satino continues and he says, crammed into the tight spot in the middle of Europe, surrounded by states that vastly outweighed it in terms of manpower and resources, it, it being Germany, could not win long drawn out wars of attrition. Uh, the Germans oriented their thinking, their approach, uh, their forces, to what, and I'm going to butcher the German here, so I apologize for any German-speaking folks out there, but it oriented itself for wars of Kurtz and Vives, or short and lively wars, that it could fight and win quickly. And the idea was that it would front-load its, its, its war-fighting uh, campaigns and operations. It would front-load them, front them and make them heavy on the front end so that the idea was that they would win that first by, uh, battle or that first fight, and then that would cause the overall war to conclude quickly. Satino said that the Germans, from Prussia on through the, the Second World War, he said, and I quote, they sought to maneuver these formations in such a way that they could strike the mass of the enemy army in a sharp and even annihilating uh, blow as rapidly as possible. The goal, and this is a little later on in the same paragraph, the goal was Kesselschlacht, a battle of encirclement, one that hemmed in enemy forces on all sides before destroying them through a series of concentric operations. And so it's almost, and this is where I, when I talked at the beginning of this about challenging some of the myths, I think this is an interesting point here uh, when you look at Satina's definition of, of how the Germans fought. There's an inconsistency here between the idea of short and lively wars and avoiding attrition, yet then constructing your approach to warfare that's battle-seeking, right? That's very, very, very similar to Napoleon in terms of, like, you're seeking the battle, right? And uh, the difference really here being that the Germans are seeking this Keschelschlacht, right, the encirclement, but then after they've encircled the opponent, uh, after they've encircled their adversary, their goal is these concentric uh, battles of annihilation. And so to me, that just seems very misaligned with this idea of, it matches the idea of mobile warfare, but it does not, ima- it does not align with this idea of maneuver warfare um, and, and the, the idea that Germans were these grand maneuverists. If anything, the way that, Satino describes the German approach to warfare, and he's not the only one. This is one of many ways. I've, you know, Satino's definition is very similar to almost every um, history I've read on, on the German military relating to how it fought, both from Frederick the Great's time up through the end of, uh, the, end of the Second World War. But it's very out of line with, with maneuverist uh, thinking, right? So, and I would argue that any approach to warfare, war fighting that seeks battle is fundamentally an attritionist or an attritional approach um, because they're using battle, the destruction of the enemy's force, 
is the currency for uh, tactical and operational uh, success as opposed to something, you know, if you're really striving for some sort of strategic paralysis through some grandiose maneuver, uh, maneuver in this case, meaning like some big move, bold movement towards the enemy's rear that's encircled their, their formation or whatever. I just, I think that this is, this is one of those points where the myth of maneuver and the myth of German warfighting versus the, and I'm, I'm shaking the book here, the historical account, uh, the, the, they're out of step with one another. Satino also makes some, some other really good points here when he talks about uh, how the Germans fought, and I think this, is, this carries weight for today, too. So he says, uh, in 1942, the Wehrmacht provided a, characteris- a characteristic answer to the question. And the question is, what do you do when the Blitzkrieg fails? And the answer to the question is, you launch another one. And so there is a, you know, a cautionary tale in the idea of trying to front load victory into a first battle or a first operation or having some sort of knockout blow right out the gate, as opposed to understanding that the odds of that, especially today in which uh, open adaptive systems, warfighting systems by industrial states in most cases are the ones making contact with one another on the battlefield, those aren't going to collapse in some sort of quick, decisive, hard, you know, fought, uh, victory right out the gate. It's going to take a significant campaign of attrition to exhaust the resources that that warfighting system uh, possesses and can generate from both um, existing latent and potential bases of power in order to win that in in order to win that battle or that campaign. And then Satino, he you know he carries on with this idea for quite a while. And he says that, uh, he says, and I quote, this was an army that likened its campaigns front-loaded, meticulously planned and designed for maximum impact. The corollary was that those who survived the first encounter had taken the best shot the Germans had to offer. Justitino's point's uh, very very useful there, too, because overextending yourself on that that first front-loaded heavy battle there, in many cases, you might have very well burn through some of your best uh, personnel and equipment as well, right? There's a, uh, there's a caution that goes with that. The caution being that front-loading uh, battles, front-loading campaigns, front-loading strategic operations with the idea of some sort of knockout blow at the beginning can cause you, if you think of the analogy of, uh, of boxing or perhaps just punching something, I'm not a boxer, so I feel... A bit, uh, a bit as an imposter if I were to use that analogy. But if you go to punch something or punch someone, and you miss on that first hit, but you put everything you have into it, you're likely going to go tumbling forward or falling down or, or completely being off balance, and then thus prone to a counterattack, a counterpunch, a counterstrike when you're in a weak position, and you don't have good equilibrium about yourself to protect yourself. From that counterstroke of the opponent, and if you look at the Germans um, and their history, 
that was one of the key things that they did throughout their time as a power, a military power, was immediately counterattacking. And so that's just an important caution to keep in mind when thinking about this idea, because it's still, it's, it's another one of those vampiric ideas. This idea of front-loading, decisive battles, first battles, the primacy of firsts, um, doing everything up front first with the best and the most right away to win quickly and win decisively. Like that does that that does not work nine times out of ten. I'd say even the percentage is higher. And so you have to uh, be careful not to orient everything you do around that idea because uh, from a probabilistic standpoint, that's probably not going to happen. What's probably going to happen is period of attrition is going to ensue. And uh, it's going to turn into a battle for resources to include people and in, in machines. And so this is something that's important to understand because that idea, likely looking at the future, is not going to change either, especially as we think about the idea of uh, future future adversaries leading with, with robotics and AI-enabled systems, not leading with their face, not leading with their human forces. And so the idea that you're going to be able to still use this this concept, this front-loaded concept, this front-loaded idea of, of hitting hard first up front and winning the first battle. Um, it's going to be of even less utility moving forward because of the uh, offset of human capabilities and human formations and human resources on the front end of campaigns and battles as actors use those non-human means to offset human loss. As we think about Military theory. This point also brings up a another. Th I'll, I'll cage it as a thought experiment for the time being, and I think at some point in the future, in a, an episode down the road, we'll come back to this idea. But what is the utility of humans on the battlefield in AI and robotic-dominated and human-machine team uh, integrated formations? What what's the point of a human being at that point? And I think that that's something that. Uh, it's important to understand too, or not necessarily understand because I don't think we know yet, um, but it's important to start thinking about now as we think about antiquated ideas such as, you know, the, the German maneuver myth, if you will, the German war of movement. Um, and if that idea is still applicable today and in the future. recounting their their battles against Yugoslavia that the Germans had advanced so far and so fast that they were left that they left numerous loose ends Yugoslav soldiers cut off from their units soon took to the mountains and formed resistance bands and as the Germans would find themselves conducting an anti-partisan campaign for the rest of the war so that's part of the balance when we talk about the difference between battle-seeking and mobile operations. During the Yugoslav campaign, the Germans were more interested in obtaining territory than they were necessarily engaging in fighting the Yugoslav army. Satino recounts how the, the, the Germans were less battle-seeking and more interested in quickly getting and gaining territory than they were fighting the Yugoslav's field army. That's part of the balance here, too, when we talk about nuance that's needed when we discuss maneuver versus mobile warfare. Those two ideas, while seemingly the same, are, are, are fundamentally different. Mobile warfare 
And again, even mobile warfare, I think perhaps you could run down the rabbit hole on this one. But mobile warfare, you're bypassing resistance. You're, you're probably more moving towards an objective, right? Something like a city, a capital, something like an airport, perhaps. Whereas a maneuver, um, you may not necessarily be uh, moving over vast distances. You're, you're moving over smaller distances over something that's, that may be a physical objective. Operational and tactical reach is another point that Satino, both directly and indirectly, hits upon in the death of the Wehrmacht. Uh, specifically, there's a point in here where he's talking about uh, the Germans have advanced towards towards Moscow. They've got their three army groups forward. And uh, I'm going to read this passage here. Uh, Satino writes, Indeed, he went on. If we destroy a dozen, the Russians put another dozen in their place. All the while, while they're fly falling back on their sources of supply, we are drawing even further away from ours. As any good SAMS graduate will tell you, operational reach is the balancing of endurance, protection, and momentum in pursuit of operational objectives. You know, as Satino makes the case for how the Germans fought, how they fought on the terrain at hand, right? So how terrain as they moved through Eastern Europe changed the dynamics and increased uh, the variables that were in play. In addition to factoring in the enemy component, you know, how is the enemy fighting you? Are they are they standing and fighting you? Because that's going to cause different uh, resource burn than if they don't fight you, but continue to back away and remain elusive. Uh, there's still significant resource burn, especially if you continue to push forward and aren't making considerable contact with the enemy. You may not be losing uh, material and personnel to the same ways that you would if you were engaged in direct fire and indirect fire combat. But at the same time, those, those considerations are still there and they are still significant. And so operational reach, uh, this is something that echoes throughout this book as he talks about the death of the Wehrmacht, the big part of the reason that the Wehrmacht died was because they had overextended, they had busted operational reach. So again, that triumvirate of endurance, protection, and momentum, they were un unable to keep that in balance as they pushed further into into uh, into the Soviet Union, into Russia proper. Uh, they lost the ability to offset a lot of the a lot of the shortages and, and, and inconsistencies within their warfighting system. That is another key component uh, that, that, that is really good within this book uh, because it really forces you. And as you, as you dig further into this series, I'm kind of jumping forward here. If you dig into the other books in the series, uh, if you look at the Wehrmacht retreats and the Wehrmacht's last stand, those really, especially the Ver Wehrmacht retreats that builds upon this, the death of the Wehrmacht in terms of the operational reach considerations and really talks about how uh, the Germans, as they'd push forward, they'd hit their culmination point. They're un unable to continue operational level operations, right? Uh, and, and they were able to locally defend themselves and fight uh, to varying degrees of success for varying durations of time. But big picture, they had hit their culmination point, which is an idea that Klaus Clausewitz sets forth in, uh, in On War, and that's that point where you're no longer able to continue offensive, continue 
progressive operations that are trying to gain and you all you revert back uh backwards essentially to self-preservation operations again when we think about military theory operational reach tactical reach are vitally important considerations to think about uh, when we think about methods of war fighting and how war fighting in the future will will, will occur later in the book satino makes the case for what I what I call in my notes here on the margins. Uh, I wrote the Zhukov Doctrine, a deviation from uh, deep operations, right, which is that, that carryover of Tukhachevsky's uh, from the earlier part of the 20th century. And again, I'm going to read a, a bit here. So Zhukov issued orders. It emphasized the role of the shot group as the spearhead of offensive action on the army or front level. Commanders were to concentrate their strength on extremely narrow frontages with the goal of achieving overwhelming superiority against a single weak German unit. Front level attack would have a width of just 30 kilometers and army, an army only 15. Huge artillery offensives were to precede each attack with a density of up to 80 guns per kilometer. Uh, targeting first the def prepared defensives, defenses they were then to shift to deeper targets to support the penetration and then deeper still to support the exploitation with ground support aircraft mirroring them. Satino calls Zhukov's innovations during this period the new Soviet way of war. And I bring all this up to say, again, you can't think about war fighting. You can't think about how to fight. You can't think about how to conduct operations without considering the enemy, right? So we've talked uh, culmination points and operational reach, we talked about terrain. Uh, the other key element you cannot overlook is how the enemy wants to fight. So I, I argue uh, in, in many places that this is more important than how you want to fight. How you want to fight is almost irrelevant because you have to fight how the terrain uh, forces you to because terrain is deterministic and how the enemy uh, forces you to fight because in many cases the enemy's deterministic and so if you build yourself uh, to fight one way with uh, very limited margins uh, and limited margins for error within your force structure your doctrine and how you're equipped and manned when you come into contact with an enemy that's causing you to fight in a way that you're not built for then you're going to run into significant challenges continuing to conduct operations. But if you have a big big picture idea, if you have a couple of like, hey, these are the two or three things, things being states most likely, um, that I think we may run into uh, p potential conflict with in the future, you orient yourself based off those threats, then you're probably going to be moving in the right direction. And so... Uh, I bring that up again just to say that you have to prepare for how the enemy is organized and how they want to operate and how they're going to fight you and how they're going to make you fight and in what terrain they're going to make you fight and how they're going to see you and understand you and try and offset your own uh, capabilities, uh, your weaknesses, and your strengths because failing to do so can be disastrous. This may smack is no kidding, but I was privy at one point um, to see a, a three-star general have to have to educate, I'll use the word educate, have to educate a fellow general officer 
on the idea that you have to actually underpin warfighting ideas, uh, warfighting theories, if you will, on not just A, what you want to do, and B, the terrain, but C, and probably most important, who is the adversary, how does the adversary fight, and how does the adversary want to fight you in that terrain? And so, again, this is a... This is an important point to ensure that you understand as you think about uh, military theory, theory development, and war in general. Okay, to conclude here, what did we not talk about? We didn't talk about Alf Trag's tactique. Again, apologize for butchering the German. I, uh, <laughs> I'm from southern Indiana, and I speak southern Indiana English, which, uh, ironically enough, does not translate well into German. We didn't talk about believing in one's own hype and caring for the uh, one's own victories in previous uh, battles and campaigns to legitimize uh, what you've done in the past, but also to help uh, serve as the setting sun for the direction upon which to build future operations. We did, however, talk about mobile and maneuver uh, warfare, the differences therein, and how those. Uh, affect uh, military thinking today. We also talked about operational reach and culmination points and logistics and the balancing of endurance protection and momentum. Uh, so we talked about operational art and we, as part of that, also talked about the Zhukov doctrine. But here in closing, I think there's also another another really interesting point to uh, to call forward here, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do so by by again quoting Satino, he says, To put it another way, the impending disaster was not simply the result of a series of individual decisions in the summer of 1942. It was fundamental and systemic. By this point, the war with the Soviet Union had placed burdens on the Wehrmacht that were far heavier than the traditional German way of war could bear. And to get back to the purpose of this, this episode here, I think that, that that passage is germane to, to understanding. Uh, so the German way of war, the way that the Germans wanted to fight, the way that the Germans built themselves to fight, it was incompatible with the way that they had to fight. And the way that they had to fight was based off the terrain in which they operated and the opponents in which they found themselves engaged. And again, like I mentioned earlier, you can't always forecast where you're going to fight or who you're going to fight, but you can anticipate uh, certain certain aspects of that, right? And so, you know, the U.S. military, for instance, they're probably always going to fight an expeditionary war. And as such, they must build themselves in such a way that facilitates expeditionary operations. What does that mean? That means wide margins for error, wide margins for overcoming the attrition that goes with trying to uh, work your way into a theater, establish a foothold, expand a bridgehead at that foothold, and then uh, flow in the forces that are needed to conduct onward offensive operations. Because again, that's the other thing too. If you're always conducting expeditionary operations, you're also always conducting offensive operations. You're always in pursuit of some goal. You're not doing a defensive war. 
And so that costs a lot of resources. And so when we look at uh, when Western militaries or the U.S. military, um, when they look at, you know, balancing that, what is the environment? Well, we don't know the environment, but we do know it's going to be expeditionary. Well, you can factor that in from the get-go then. It's going to be expeditionary. It's going to require significant uh, movements from point A to point B, whether that's in a joint environment or then later in a land environment. Um, and then as a result of that, there's going to be whoever it is you're going against, regardless of who that actor may or may not be, they're going to try and stop you. If you think it's going to take X number of armored formations to do the task on a pool table in that contested environment, you may want to make that X plus two. And then if you say, well, that contested environment, the enemy is is trying to stop me, but the terrain is not a pool table, but a mix of, you know, mountainous areas, wooded areas, a few open areas. So that in itself is going to be a factor that I also have to consider. So then you've got X plus two to account for the enemy, but then an additional two to account for the environment. So what was initially X is now X plus four. Tying this back to Satino and what he said here about the, uh, the Germans, he said, to put it another way, the impending disaster is not simply the result of a series of individual decisions in the summer of 1942, but more fundamental and systemic. And again, that fundamental and systemic thing is the part that we all really have to pay attention to when we think about how to organize and equip and uh, operate. Not not today, because today's that ship has sailed, but for the future and in the future of armed conflict. And so, again, I'm going to finish this passage out here. By that point, the war with the Soviet Union had placed burdens on the Wehrmacht that were far heavier than the traditional German way of war could bear. Closing here, as we think about fighting in the future, it's imperative for Western militaries to think through that fundamental and systemic situation. Are we accounting for the fundamental and systemic success uh, variables? Are we, are we identifying those, those variables that are going to cause failure fundamentally and systemically? And are we doing something to compensate for those and not compensate on the margins, but compensate significantly in a way that ensures that victory isn't in question and that our way of war, the Western way of war, is not incompatible with the future of armed conflict, but in fact generates victory because again, at the end of the day, if you're going to war and you're not trying to win, why are you even there? The cost and resources, human lives, and devastation to non-combatants is not worth the cost of going and just being there to be there. Thank you for listening to Revolution and Military Affairs. Uh, again, as I mentioned in a, in a previous episode, uh, we have a lot of great guests coming up here in the next couple of weeks. I think you'll be really uh, quite excited with who we've got coming on. And uh, if you have any questions or comments or want to provide me feedback, uh, please do so. Uh, my contact information, you can find that in the on the podcast uh, webpage. And if you have recommendations uh, for guests or recommendations for topics, by all means, please uh, send those my way as well. I'm always happy to entertain those. And uh, with that, thank you again. I'm Amos Fox. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. And this is Revolution of Military Affairs.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.